Hello, I'm Rob Smith and it's time to take a talk on the wild side. Welcome to the second episode of Talk on the Wild Side, the podcast that aims to take you by the hand and lead you up the garden path and over hill and down dale in search of environmentally friendly stuff. In this episode, we're going to be going on a hunt for wild beavers in Ham Fen. They've really transformed the landscape, actually. Um, I mean, 20 years is is a decent chunk of time for the beaver to really do some good work. We'll be having a chat with Kent Wildlife Trust Director of Development, Sarah Brownlee, about wilder carbon, education and getting big business interested in protecting the environment. Nature, on its own, um, is the only no-regrets technology that we currently have um, to lock up carbon. And I have seen the future, and the future is vertical. We will be going to arguably the most high-tech, commercial, environmentally aware farm in the world, just outside of Sandwich. So it's about four acres in size, uh, and that's equivalent, once fully operational, to about a thousand acres of grade one farmland. (laughs) That's amazing. Now, you might be wondering what a high-tech vertical farm has to do with Kent Wildlife Trust. Well, the answer is Wilder Carbon. Grow Up are the first company to invest in the Wildlife Trust's Wilder Carbon scheme. You'll be hearing about that both from Sarah and Grow Up in a tick. So we're visiting Ham Fen and looking at lettuce being produced in Sandwich. There's got to be a gag there somewhere, isn't it? I'll let you work on that for yourself. Now, first, let's kick off with the latest safari experience I've been on in Kent, looking for wild beavers. Beavers used to be a common animal in the UK, but they were hunted to extinction by the 16th century. In 2002, though, after a long battle with all the authorities, Kent Wildlife Trust was finally given permission to release a pair of Eurasian beavers into a reserve at Ham Fen, Kent's last remaining bit of Fenland, just outside of Sandwich. And on a balmy evening in June, I met up with Ranger Louise Lawton and a dozen or so keen nature lovers to explore the 100 acres patch of land that the beavers had been busily, well, beavering away in for the last 20 odd years to see what kind of an impact they've had. They've really transformed the landscape, actually. Um, I mean, 20 years is is a decent chunk of time for the beaver to really do some good work. So we've basically changed uh, what would have what was previously arable farmland back into its original uh, habitat, which was a sort of fen, wetland, reed bed kind of habitat. Mm-hmm. So what was this land 25 years ago? Um, so this would have been a crop field, really. We would have been standing in a crop field. I mean, it would have been left for quite a while before we took it over, so it would have gone fallow and things like that. So it wouldn't have been suddenly... It wouldn't have been wheat to then suddenly wetland. Um, it would have had a little uh, gap in between. But, yeah, originally this would have been a crop field. It would have looked the same as the surrounding fields. OK, so as we wander around then, what are we looking out for, what the, what, what the beavers have done? Yeah, so we're looking for like really significant change in the in the landscape. So the majority of what we will be looking at today will be the waterways. So we'll be looking at the way that beavers have moved, um, have moved out from in their territories and created many water channels, um, and that's recreated a lot of different types of habitat. So by bringing water back onto the site, it's encouraged a lot more species to to grow here, plant species and things, which obviously increases the biodiversity in the area as well. And what kind of species are we talking about? You know, lots of bird life. We can hear plenty of bird life tweeting in the background, can't we? Yeah, yes, yeah. so there's lots of bird life. I mean, there's lots of, like the reed, for example, is a really good um, plant that grows here. Its, it's rhizomes filtrate the water.
water, um, which makes the water really nice and clean. We've got lo we get lots of flowers growing here as well, lots of wildflowers for our for our insects, um, and we do get uh, orchids here as well, which is really nice. So yeah. And what kind of birds are you starting to get rare unusual birds coming back here yeah so we have cuckoo here um that come that came back here we get uh, lots of woodpeckers in the area birds of prey as well like tawny owl buzzard marsh harriers kestrels um we also have turtle dove that breed nearby as well um so yes a lovely species as well as sort of the little warblers that come and visit us in the summer like the sedge warblers and the chetty's warblers and things so yeah variety and in terms of actually managing the land how much active stuff do you as Kent Wildlife Trust have to do with ham fen now or does it just get on with it? Well we've got a lovely team, um, we've got a warden and his team of volunteers that manage the site. I mean they don't do as much here as they do on other sites um, and that's not because they don't want to, it's because the beaver does a lot of work for them. So they maintain a lot of uh, various parts of the site but we use the beaver and we also use um, our grazing animals such as our cows and our water buffalo as well which help to graze the grass and keep that keep that down as well for us. Now we're actually doing this as a safari, there's a little gang of us who are going wandering about you can't normally come on here can you this is normally closed to the public yes it's why is that it's completely closed site there's no public rights of way through this area so it is a private site so i think because of the beaver reintroduction project they decided that it was best to keep it keep it closed to the public let the beavers do their thing without any interference and i think it just makes it more special for when you do visit it <laughs> so hello who are you uh, my name's libby i am um, i live in whitstable um quite a keen birder but i've never seen a beaver so uh, right, I quite okay. like to see a beaver. <laughs> and have you done any of these kind of safari things before? What do you make of it? I haven't, no I haven't, this is the first one um, so yeah quite exciting. It's quite wet this bit now isn't it? It is quite wet yes. <laughs> but at least it's not cold. So. <laughs> so you said you're a birder? Yeah. Have you seen anything so far as we're going about? Yeah there's been some white throat, there was some reed bunting, um, I can hear quite a few chiff chaffs, there was a skylark when we came in um yeah it's plenty about you can hear more than you can see usually at this time of year so uh, yeah it's beautiful it's beautiful <laughs> puddle it's really quite wet <laughs> i do recommend if you come out to do this sturdy boots or indeed Wellingtons. Possibly waders. <laughs> I'm wet to the knees. So we've made it to the actual beaver dam area. Bit of actual open water. You can hear the water gurgling as it goes round the side of the dam from the higher level to the lower level. It's all covered in willow and mint and rushes everywhere intensely green it's a beautiful evening the sun's just setting at the moment there's a lot of insects flying around many of which are trying to nestle in in my shirt amazing amount of bird life no sign of the beavers yet but it's a beautiful restful spot you can see a lot of dead trees amongst the the sort of shrubby shrubby bushes and things like that 
So the trees have actually died here because of the introduction of the, the water. Um, they don't like being soggy and having soggy roots. So actually the water here has killed off the trees, which sounds like a really bad thing. It's like, why on earth have you killed all the trees? Um, but actually, um, what we call standing dead wood is a really fantastic resource for wildlife. And it's only been in recent years where we've appreciated how important it is. Um, because normally if a tree dies, we cut it down, we remove the wood. And actually by removing the wood, you remove all of the, that beneficial um, habitat really for a variety of wildlife. So when a tree is dying or decaying standing upright, the hollows in the tree provide fantastic habitats for um, a variety of different species such as uh, birds like our woodpeckers, they'll nest in them, owls will nest in them um, and also bats, they will roost in, in, uh, in hollowed out trees. So actually by having these trees here we've increased numbers of all of those species here on, on our site. We've got a variety of different bat species as well, we've got long-eared bats. Um, they like to feed over the water so they're attracted by both the water and the hollow trees as a place to roost. Um, because they're often the little midges that hang over the water will be the things that the bats will eat um, and they'll take those so you'll more often find bats near water as well as near, near trees and things. Um, so obviously that's, that's been really good for them. And then once that tree starts to rot down completely and eventually fall down, um, that again provides a really good habitat for a variety of insects, invertebrates, who will be munching away on that like decaying wood. Um, fungi will grow on it. Um, and then also once that wood has decayed, it will then rot down into the soil and provide even more nutrients to, to the soil and then allow other things to grow. So it kind of completes that cycle. Um, as well as it being a really good way of, of storing a lot of carbon, it, it doesn't get released into the atmosphere, it just sort of decays and then is stored in the soil instead. So having the dead trees here is actually a, a really good thing for this, this area. Um, but instead of the, the original trees that would have been here, I mean there are things like oaks and things that would have suffered because of the water, we've actually got a new variety of, um, of trees. We have a lot of willow here, we have a bit of aspen, um, and these trees are the beaver's favourite food, essentially. Um, they actually, kind of intentionally or not, I'm never sh too sure, they plant their own food source. Um, because willow, if any of you have ever planted a willow tree or have a type of willow at home, you can basically grow another tree from a cutting, take the stick off and pop it in the ground and it will root. It roots that easily and it spreads quite easily as well. Um, and basically that's what beavers do. They um, will store a lot of the, the, the sticks and the branches and things for their winter food source. Um, and whatever they don't come back for will usually grow into new trees. A bit like how squirrels bury their nuts and then don't always come back for the nuts. A similar thing. Those, those acorns grow into new oak trees. So it's quite a similar thing with the beaver, really. Um, so they've kind of planted their own little woodland and their own food source here around, around Ham Fen. My name's Roger. Why have you decided to come along on a safari, Roger? Uh, because it's not very often open to the public. We have also been on the uh, Grove Ferry trip a couple of times to see the beavers there. So mm -hmm. there's a rumour was they may have escaped from here some time ago. It's good to come and see. So did the you see? Did you see them at Grove Ferry then? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You you say guaranteed, but we've done the trip twice, and each time we've sighting of beavers is say 10 or so wow right okay uh, well, last we'll time one was sat on the bank in front of us just chewing before it decided to slide in the water usually you just see them swimming backwards and forwards and just describe this scene for me here because this is a lovely spot isn't it well this is a particularly 
this time of day with the light as it is but uh, yes it's absolutely lovely with the reeds um, and just the stillness of the water and the dragonflies you can see watch the you know, the reflections in the water because the water's so still and it really is quite magical my name's becca and why have you come out on this safari becca well um actually the voucher was a, a, a gift for a, a birthday um uh, and there's lots of choices on the um, on the Wildlife Trust website, and this one was just the one that appealed most. Mm. I mean, you know, who isn't into a massive rodent? Who who wouldn't want the chance to see one? I mean, I don't think anything's happening tonight, but it's a beautiful place to to be nonetheless. It really is, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Have you come far? Uh, just from Whitstable, so not far at all, really. And the amount of bird life is just amazing, isn't it? It's incredible. I'm not um, I'm not that knowledgeable, but I've already seen quite a lot of different things here you can see that there's uh, lots of different habitats so it's um well we sat by the waterside for 20 minutes and um we've heard a lot of bird song and it's been a beautiful evening apart from the annoying microlites haven't actually seen a beaver but you know what (laughs) it really doesn't matter It's been just such a treat. Such a treat to come out here. It's beautiful. Well, Louise, I mean, I'm I'm not disappointed. We didn't see a beaver, but I'm not disappointed. That was great. Oh, good. I'm so pleased. (laughs) It's a really nice place for a walk. It is a lovely place to visit. It's just beautiful. There is quite a lot of insect life here, I'm noticing, which is great. But it is a fen, isn't it? So there's a lot of mosquitoes and things buzzing yeah. around. Yeah, lots of insects, which is a really good sign, which means that the habitat is right and it's doing the good stuff. But there are lots of creatures that will also eat these mosquitoes. So we've got our swallows here and we get bats that come out around this time, actually, to hopefully come and eat now, some of those up. Now, one of the things that, because you just mentioned bats there, and that reminds me, because there's a lot of standing dead wood here. Mm. There was a little woodland that was in the middle yeah. and a lot of that actually died when the beavers came in and flooded the land yes that's right yeah so the beavers obviously flooded the land and some of the trees that were already here don't like having wet feet um so it it did slowly kill off some of our larger trees here on the site which isn't necessarily a bad thing we often you know hear about trees dying or being cut down and things and it's a bad thing but actually here it's it's really good because the standing dead wood as you mentioned is fantastic um habitat for these nesting nesting birds and also the bats that will be roosting within the trunks of these trees and things as well and does that mean that the actual kinds of trees and woodland that's developing here is completely different to what you would have seen 30 years ago yeah it will be because all the trees and um shrubs and things the scrub sorry will be developing um will be ones that will be used to growing in in wetter habitats so we've got lots an increase in things like willow which grows really well in damp wet soils and actually it's the perfect food source for the beaver as well really enjoy eating it so it's a win-win okay let's talk a bit more about beaver because uh, as we stood we we were by the water side there we didn't actually see them but the way that they create the dam for the lodge is really specific so just tell me a bit bit more about how that actually works yeah so beavers are kind of engineers of their ecosystem so they change it and adapt it to how it suits them which then benefits a whole range of other species so what the beavers do is they they use wood from trees that they felled um to build their lodge which is their home um essentially a big 
mound of sticks with little compartments in there where they live and they have they have their kits um, and they store their food for the winter time and because the lodge the entrance to the lodge is actually underneath the water so beavers access their home from swimming under the water and up into their into their lodge actually this is a really good uh, safe way of being able to enter their home without holes being accessible for for predators and things like that and so by maintaining a, a constant water level to keep their entrance to their lodge under the water, they then build the dams. Right. So it's the dams that then hold the water back on the river system um, and it has that constant water level so that their the entrance to their lodge never becomes exposed right, due okay. to low water. And that then has massive knock-on effect because fish, insects, birds, everything else depends on that water being there yeah yeah so obviously by building dams beavers slow down the flow of the river as well so lots of species benefit from a much uh, slower flowing river that kingfishers and things like that will be able to feed um, much easier in slower water and it, it creates little pools of water for sort of fish to breed in as well um, and also things like our waterfowl that live here um, have done really really well because the the um, the water level that's maintained by the beaver has benefited the waterfall because they're mu- at much less risk of their um, their nests and their holes in the bank being flooded by um, sort of storm events and things like that, which is what the dams help to stop. And as we say, the, the beavers were introduced here 21 years ago, whenever it was. They're not just in Ham Fen anymore, are they? They've, <laughs> they've got out. They are genuinely wild in the countryside in Kent now. Yeah, they are. So they've been seen across the River Stour. They've been sightings up near Canterbury. And we've also had recent sightings as far as Ashford, which is amazing. Yeah, really nice to know that they've spread and seem to be doing quite well, thriving out in the in the, the wider ecosystem. Which is And really it's one of those things that when they were first introduced, there was all sorts of concerns about what that would mean to the countryside and whether farmers would be angry or upset about it but actually it's fine so far so good i mean there's still going to be people out there that are not going to be keen on beaver next door um and it's just a case of us speaking to the right people you know it's all about information and education really it's making sure that people are getting the right information about the beavers they're not listening to hearsay or myths or things that have been passed around for years um and hopefully we can encourage more beavers to spread across the country through education and and talking to people and encouraging people to come and see sites like this to show exactly what what good the beavers have done in the landscape well it's been fantastic having a wander around in the countryside with you louise thank you ever so much for that thanks for coming Many thanks to Louise Lawton there for taking us on safari. And one of the interesting side effects of the beavers' wetland management at Ham Fen is that last year, when the UK was suffering a 40-degree summer heatwave and everywhere else was parched, the ground at Ham Fen never dried out. Beavers, it turns out, really are a powerful natural tool, not just for encouraging biodiversity, but in some ways mitigating climate change as well. Talking of which... A phrase you're likely to hear a lot more of in the coming years is wilder carbon, which is all to do with both trying to protect the environment and mitigate climate change at the same time. It's a key part of the work that Sarah Brownlee does. Now, Sarah is the Director of Development for Kent Wildlife Trust, and I met up with her in the garden at Thailand Barn, Kent Wildlife Trust's headquarters just outside of Maidstone. And before we got on to the subject of wilder carbon, I started my conversation by asking her about another important part of her role, that of education, and why it's such a key part of her work. 
So um, it's about winning hearts and minds. Um, it's about um, educating from very, very early on. You know, we do uh, ho holiday clubs, which is where we have ages of uh, one, two, three, four-year-olds coming out and doing pond dipping and, and uh, getting out into the gardens and identifying mini beasts. And it's, it's about engaging people at a very early age and exposing them to, to nature and making it a normal thing. You know, we're all our age we're very used to um have have been outside and climbing over logs and getting in the mud it's it's so that the disconnection with nature is actually one of the key threats that we are facing so we really want to um, reach people from a very early age um, but then all the way through up to you know adulthood as well um, to continue to to educate educate and engage people um to to um, get out in nature because I've been out on a safari. Oh, yeah. That's part of your remit, isn't it? Getting Absolutely. you know anybody who wants to to actually go out and see what yes. is happening on Kent Wildlife Trust's land. That's correct, yeah. So our safaris are a, a wonderful um, opportunity to... Um, I, I think quite often people want to be um, going out and seeing nature and experiencing nature, but they don't know necessarily where to go or how to find the, the good bits, the little slices of paradise that exist in Kent. So we take them on a tour... Um, through our reserves, um, whether they're public or some of them um, which are not public, like Ham Fen, um, because we have wild grazing program, uh, we have beavers, wild beavers. So it's about um, allowing people to experience those real gems of, of opportunity to get out and about in nature and, and talk them through uh, and, and guide them through the different reserves. And um, why does this stuff matter? You know, you own the land, you, you can do what you want to do on the land that you own. Why does it matter that you kind of have people being educated? Absolutely. So the charity, we... we we can't own all of the land. <laughs> we can certainly own and, and protect and, and preserve um, large areas of land in Kent. We, we have, um, I think, 80, 87 reserves now, and that's constantly growing. Um, but it's about um, rallying people to, to support all of Kent's wildlife um, and every little bit counts. Uh, we have a Wilder, uh, Wild About Gardens programme where people can look to bring nature back into their gardens and teach them how to, um, you know, initiatives like No Mo May but going one step further and, and creating connectivity across Kent because that's where we will see ecosystems recover um, and wildlife really thrive. Um, we need to bring it back, we need to preserve it but we want to see in abundance and that's really going to um, start to make a change so it's about influencing um, e everyone um, to do their bit and part of this is the internet isn't it and d d digital digital <laughs> yes. interactivity whatever that means absolutely yes so another um thread to to my bow is the digital development department um that's headed up by robbie who's our head of digital development fantastic team um and we're looking at how we can utilize digital solutions um to connect people with nature not as an alternative uh, reality to 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 nature so um that's that's been fundamental for, to really understanding, um, you know, baselining, mapping, you know, simple things like just understanding where opportunities for connectivity are. Um, we've been a key part of uh, mapping the nature recovery network that we're that we're um, working with in partnership with local authorities. Um, so that's about kind of strategic planning of the areas that we look to restore and connect for nature. Um, 
And then the, the other side of it is using clever um, digital games um, to inspire and engage people um, at, at different ages, again, to, to connect with nature. So uh, during lockdown, we we relied on the internet and doing uh webinars and zooms um for to, to continue to, to speak to people and engage with them and um, kind of give them lessons of how to make the most of their natural spaces close by and people really relied on it to um to cope through a really really scary time um so that was a, a, a invaluable um tool the internet um to to really connect with people and get them i mean it's been a real game changer isn't it that you can then it's sped up lots of processes that are actually allowing you to use those things which people had talked about for a long time but now they actually do it (laughs) yeah it's it's incredible um i think that people were perhaps reluctant um but yes we we were put in a position over covid where we had to immediately become a completely virtual organization um and we really um thrived actually in in certain uh, respects you know it was it was a very concerning time for the tra- for the charity um we we did lose income and and um our usual supporters our volunteers we couldn't have our volunteers going out and checking on livestock and things like that at some point so it was a, a very difficult time for the trust but yes you're absolutely right the changes that we put into place over covid have really now um started to allow us to um do very many different things in different ways mm. so it's very positive now and what what's the is there one thing that kind of is exciting you more than anything else at the moment you've got a myriad projects going on what's the thing that's kind of making you you know get up in the morning and think brilliant i'm doing this today um, <laughs> it's it's all fantastic and amazing every project that we are doing in the trust is is so exciting um and i think just the breadth of of the areas of work that we're trying to cover is um obviously highly ambitious um, and also incredibly innovative you know we've got um, ecosystem engineers that we've put into Bleem Woods wild bison for the first time in the UK um, we're now looking at pine marting turtle dove um, endless species related projects um, you know we're at the cutting edge of, of leading conservation so it's incredibly exciting um, the project that takes up most of my uh, <laughs> my my mind and uh, mind space uh, is is wilder carbon right yes okay let's let's talk about what wilder carbon yeah actually is because this is kind of a real this has got a very broad impact isn't it and you're looking to bring business into protecting the environment in a way that hasn't quite been done anywhere else before yeah absolutely so um it can get quite complex but i'm going to try and um keep it simple mm-hmm. um because because it, it is really um wilder carbon is about harnessing the power of nature um so it's looking at nature-based solutions um that will tackle the climate crisis um so nature on its own um is the only no regrets technology that we currently have um to lock up carbon um, it's it's incredible. There's lots of uh, discussion around how we can create new technologies to capture carbon out of the air because basically we, there's too much carbon in the atmosphere. Um, so we've got 
UK and global targets now to reduce the, these emissions. Um, so that's about companies, organisations, individuals reducing the amount of, of, of carbon that is emitted into the atmosphere. So that's a fundamental. We absolutely have to be reducing the carbon um, <clears throat> that we emit. Um, but this needs to be reinforced with restoring large-scale um, nature to be able to do its job okay. that it's been doing for millions of years to naturally lock up carbon. So part of it, carbon offsetting is a phrase that has been Absolutely. knocking around for a while. And yes. that, that's one of these things where uh, all sorts of companies will say, you buy one of our products and every time we you know, make £100, we'll plant a tree, that kind of thing. Yes. That, so it, it's, it's that sort of principle, mm-hmm. but on a, a more thoughtful process because sometimes that amounts to just greenwashing doesn't it absolutely yes offsetting um has got a bad rap in the press um, and understandably because there are examples of where it has not gone well Um, and the fundamental thing is to do um, natural climate solutions in a high integrity way and what that means is that you want to see high quality projects so um, nature-based carbon projects that do good for not just from a carbon perspective I plant a tree that's going to lock up carbon for me you know this is about restoring the ecosystem functionality um, which is going to see wildlife thrive and allow it to to lock up carbon in the most resilient way. You know, the climate is changing, so we need to allow nature to adapt um, and restore naturally. So it's about re-establishing those natural processes. So it's about the quality of the project. And then once you've worked really hard to assure that that carbon is going to be locked up in a resilient way for the long term, you then want to match it with buyers, with companies who are demonstrably reducing their emissions. Okay. So, so in pragmatic terms, what does that mean? Yeah. How are you doing it? Yeah, so um, a key issue is when um, they, they say these large corporates are still polluting. You know, they're not doing anything to actually reduce the damage. Um, they're not reducing their emissions. They're not changing their operations to reduce the amount of carbon they emit. So we want to work with corporates who are doing everything they can to reduce their emissions. They will then inevitably have a residual that they are emitting. You know, we... we we can't um, stop every business right away. You know, we need to find a sustainable way to operate. So it's about reducing as much as you possibly can and then investing in wilder carbon projects um, to restore nature and lock up additional carbon um, to then achieve net zero at a date in the future. OK, so I want you to give me two examples. <laughs> one of a place where you're actually locking up wilder yes, carbon yes. and one of a business that's actually conforms to what you're talking about who's one of the good guys yeah sure so um wilder carbon uh the the thing that's going to provide that assurance is that the standard that we have developed it's the wilder carbon standard for nature and climate um and so we've had two projects currently validated under the standard um one in somerset honeygar um so it's a a national initiative which is really exciting um and one here in kent heather corrie vale which is a former golf course that we're allowing to to naturally regenerate into wonderful woodland and grassland Um, and so uh, these projects are live Um, we are selling units that have been that have been estimated uh, to to be locked up over the duration of 50 years Um, and the companies that we're working with are the likes of grow up farms so these are an incredible innovative um, upward growing lettuce (laughs) farmer and they're using uh, they they do it all indoors don't they it's really 
super high tech vertical farming yes, they call absolutely. it and and it's uh sort of hydroponics and and uh exactly. full uv light and all that kind of stuff yes. inside a building yes. but with a zero carbon footprint absolutely yeah it's fantastic um they they are using renewable energy they're they're, they're doing everything they possibly can to make their operations sustainable but what they realize is that um not being a traditional farming method um where where can they impact where where can they do more for nature so that's why they wanted to partner with um, a project that was going to allow them to to do more for the environment um, and and help heather corrie vale turn into uh, a a naturally regenerated woodland so I mean, it's a big project. Yes. It's expensive doing this it kind is. of stuff, isn't yes. it? Is, is that one of the, the kind of the big barriers to do it, that you need to have people coming on board who are really committed? At what point will you reach a kind of a tipping point where all sorts of companies will be able to do it? Yes. Well, any company could do this now. Um, so all we ask is that, um, obviously, it has to be proportionate. So um, grow-up farms are a, a reasonably small-scale business, low carbon intensity, and they're taking proportionate action. They're doing what they can for their size. Large corporations, you need to see much more effort and much more investment into becoming a more sustainable business. So the kind of evidence that we would want to see for them to become what we call an approved buyer for wilder carbon, um, it, 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 you know the large corporations you'd want to see them signed up to something like the science-based targets initiative um, which makes sure that they are measuring managing their emissions in the right way um, for them to then be able to explore carbon units and does that make it it's sort of slightly counterintuitive isn't it but it's does that make it too difficult for big companies to get into or do you have to make it difficult otherwise there's no point doing it at all it has to be right. It has to be proportionate effort. Um, if they are not reducing their emissions, um, then they're not cutting off the issue at, at source. Um, so it, they need, it needs to be genuine carbon removal reductions from an operational perspective, um, as well as then investing in natural carbon lockup. So in five years' time, mm-hmm. what will success look like? When you look back on the project in five years' time, if, if yeah. certain things have happened, you'll be happy. What, what are those? What do you want to see? Yeah, well, Wilder Carbon's got to a point now where we're operational. You know, we're, we're up and running. It's uh, it's not a drill. <laughs> so we we want to deploy the scale. Um, we want we want to deploy the standard at scale Um, so we're continuing to develop that project pipeline we've got more coming along to to be validated that will generate more units and simultaneously so what does does that mean buying more old golf courses woodland you know that when you're saying you've got to physically get more land that you can rewild to do this haven't you yes so um, companies like kent wildlife trust but also environmental engos around the uk anyone um, who is a a, a trusted conservation deliverer um, can can deliver a a wilder carbon project yes um, but we can also work with private landowners as well who want to integrate um, nature-based solutions perhaps into their farming practice Um, and uh, it provides an income for them to be able to do nature-friendly farming so it's an alternative to um, elms where there may be some uncertainty or, or traditional countryside stewardship schemes so the the opportunities to deploy the standard are are, are wide and 
is it is it actually expensive to do? How much does it cost to to become part of the scheme? Yeah. So the these projects they need to be sustained for at least fifty years. So this is about long term nature restoration. So these projects are are not cheap. Um, and actually, locking up additional carbon it, it shouldn't be cheap. Um, we we want to be seen to to provide a high quality product um, and so we've priced our carbon units at 75 pounds i know there's initiatives that say oh with a click of a button you can plant a tree for 15 pence but what action is that actually happening um, if if people are paying cheap um, is it actually meaningful high quality action is the tree going to sustain you know it's it's about um, high quality and sustainable impact on the ground so of, of course that's going to be reflected in the price of the units and what does a unit mean what do what do you get for your 75 quid so we are selling um, the carbon benefit to corporates so that's about them being able to use that carbon data in their environmental reporting um, so one unit um, which you can purchase for 75 pounds is equal to one ton co2 equivalent one ton of carbon right okay and that's one ton that's sucked out of the atmosphere and turned into something useful back in the ground. That's right. So it's it's uh, sequestered um, by the, 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 the nature that is being restored. So through the scrub, the above ground vegetation, um, in, in the future we can, we'll be able to measure and, and quantify the carbon that's sequestered in the soil. Um, or <clears throat> in, in the instances of, say, uh, degraded peatland, um, we re-wet it and we reduce the amount that that peatland is, is emitting. And hopefully over time, years and years and years, that will also be become a sequestering environment and of course this also has the kind of accidental benefit of being great for all sorts of other birds <laughs> insects mammals you name it it's going to be growing in real intense biodiversity in those areas absolutely these are not monoculture um you know monoculture tree planting uh blocks the these are na- by by re-establishing natural processes you're allowing um diverse habitats um and that's going to boost biodiversity and see wildlife thrive um, in abundance um, and of course that's good for people too so when this becomes a kind of a household name that's mm-hmm. when you know you you've you've hit pay dirt absolutely yeah yeah the the buyers that we are working with um for them to become an approved become approved buyers um it's it's developing well um but yeah we just need more businesses to to come on board to talk to us about their plans um and to invest in 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 water carbon projects do you enjoy your job I love it. I would not do anything different. It's fantastic. <laughs> We're really making a difference here. You know, we are making a difference for future generations. Someone has to do it. And we are all so committed to make a change and to make that impact. Well, Sarah, it's been an absolute pleasure having a chat with you. Uh, all power to your elbow. And it's a great spot to have be able to sit here and talk about this isn't it absolutely yes it's it's beautiful we're looking out over the poppies and the wildflower it's lovely thailand barn is a one of those slices of paradise so do come along it's amazing that you can do it in the crook of the m20 i know (laughs) yes there is a hum of traffic isn't there but um but that's telling isn't it nature can coexist it's uh, it's everywhere so we should we should make that happen thank you sarah thank you 
Sarah Brownlee, the Director for Development for Kent Wildlife Trust. Now, Sarah mentioned Grow Up Farms as the first major investor in the Wilder Carbon Scheme, and I was intrigued by what she had to say about them, and I wanted to take a look for myself at exactly what it is they do. Grow Up is based in a large, anonymous, brand-new, blue big box of a building on the edge of the old Pfizer site at Sandwich and from the outside you would never guess that they are already producing thousands of bags of salad every week for sale in supermarkets. When the site's fully finished in a couple of years time they hope to be regularly supplying some 650 UK retail stores. It's a serious operation, not some artisan hobby project. But they claim to have an incredibly small impact on the environment by growing their lettuce in purpose-built chambers that maintain perfect conditions. That mean the plant goes from seed to harvest in just 18 days, having never needed to be sprayed with pesticides. Not even, in fact, touched by human hand at all. So the leaves don't even need washing. I met up with Grup's impact director, Gillan Dobby, to ask him what he saw as being the point of the business. I suppose the point is there's sort of two or three things. I mean, one, uh, the most important, is that it's the environmental costs of the demands that are required to feed the world. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just another way of reducing that cost, one way or another. I mean, we once this farm is fully operational, it'll lose a lot less water, uh, to the tune of over 90%. 90% less water? Yeah, more than 90. I don't like going like 94, I think we're at at the moment, but, you know, between 90 and 94, yeah. Um, and we um, produce it with a lot less greenhouse gas emissions. Fun fact is the growing lettuce, half of the greenhouse gas emissions of growing lettuce is the nitrogen. So, and you can split that in half. It's the energy needed to make the nitrogen uh, and then the nitrogen that gets into the river that then makes it respire and produce carbon dioxide, mm-hmm. so both sides. Well, because we operate in a controlled environment, we can reuse that nitrogen. It doesn't run off into the rivers, so it's much more efficient. So our emissions are lower too, significantly and in, lower. And in terms of the physical sort of footprint of the place, how big is, is this plant going to be? It'll and what is that the equivalent to if you were to grow that amount of lettuce on a normal field? Yeah, that's a good question. So it's about four acres in size, uh, and that's equivalent, once fully operational, to about a thousand acres of grade one farmland. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, it is great. It is really cool. Um, and we spent a lot of time and energy trying to figure out how to do it. Yeah. So physically, how do you do that then? It's called vertical farming. What, what does that actually mean? Inside the farm over there, um, we have chambers. Each chamber is three double-decker buses long, three double-decker buses high, and three double-decker buses wide. And inside, you've got layers. And under under each layer is is some is some lights. And above is that you've got a tray, uh, and then the the lettuce is then in a sort of plastic frame mm-hmm. and it f- floats in the tray and then the nutrient water is, 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 is then feeding the roots of the plant and then the lights above are then providing it with the light it needs to grow. And the actual environment in that chamber is really crucial isn't it? Absolutely. So we can adjust the environment to uh, prompt the plants to do different things. So if you want it to grow quickly, if you want it to taste different, if you want it to different colours and things, we can we can adjust. And we have a team in Cambridge, our rocket scientists, 
uh, at our leaf Rocket lab. Rocket scientists. At our, at, our leaf, <laughs> at our leaf lab. And, and they develop our grow how. Um, and basically, there's a hell of a lot of science that goes into producing a crop that is really tasty, mm-hmm. but also is produced very efficiently uh, and therefore has a lower environmental footprint. Now, after putting on a very fetching high-vis jacket, hard hat and steel toe-cap boots, we were allowed to go onto the main floor of the building. But there wasn't a lettuce leaf in sight. And we're in, in the bit between our offices and the high-care environment where the lettuce is grown and harvested and everything. And, I mean, I have to say that at the moment, it doesn't look like a farm. It looks like we're in a, a kind of really clean factory. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the farming takes place in, in I mean, our listeners won't be able to see, but in this white box. And we've got a wee window that you can see through. But the void that we're in right now is really to contain all the equipment and the machinery and the space to do the growing within the high care environment. Yeah. Right next to so there's, there's a lot of ducting, a lot of metal work, a lot of wires suspending the ceiling, um, just pipes running everywhere, really. Yeah, yeah, so that's to bring all the climate control into the chambers. Okay. So this will be bringing ducting in, air, you know, um, water, everything from all the processes around into the chambers and the, and the farming unit. So can we go and see some plants? We can see some plants, but we can't go and touch them or feel them or go into the actual high care environment because we run a high care, food safe, hyper clean processes and protocols. I'm one of the founders of the business. I, I can't even go in there. I'm not allowed to, I'm not trained to do it. Our, foods, our food technicians and growers get, uh, are the farmers and they're the ones that are allowed inside. Well, let's go and look through the window. Yeah, sure. This is the uh, seeding line. So these plastic trays, as they come through, they'll be um, dosed with uh, growing media and then the, there's a seeding machine that then plants the seeds into the growing media and then it gets whizzed off into the chambers, which we can't see but they are behind that wall there, that white wall there. Right, okay. So no, no human hand touches the seeds or the trays or anything as it's going through the process? Exactly. That's the idea. So, Gillen, we've walked round to another window. I can actually see some greenery now. There's some plants. Yeah, so this, this will be product that's just come out of a chamber, probably in the last, you know, half an hour or so. And then it'll, it'll be put through like a bandsaw, which you can just see here, mm-hmm. uh, and that separates the, the leaves from the roots and, the, and then the trays, the used trays will go off in one direction to be cleaned and reused, and then the lettuce uh, will be um, picked up in these blue boxes, and then it will go off to the, um, the bagging room where it gets put into bags. But, I think the, the point, point is, is nobody actually touches it. No one they? touches it, yeah. yeah. So it, the first person to touch the lettuce will be you when you open that bag. And that has huge ramifications for the impact. It means we use less water, it means that we waste less, it means that the product lasts longer, which means you, you waste less in the home. It's, it's actually it's a, it's a really big deal. So the space we're in here, I can see the, the chambers, and we can't actually look into the chambers, but there's no, it, it's all pink in there, isn't it? The light that the, the, the plants grow in is pink light. Yes. Why, why is that? Well, when you look at a... Well, lots of plants, but lettuce, it's green mm-hmm. because it's reflecting green light. It doesn't, doesn't want green light. So we remove green light from the spectrum because we don't need it. 
Okay. So what is that, a cost saving? You use less energy by doing that? We have a team in Cambridge. Um, we have a leaf lab in Cambridge where our rocket scientists work. <laughs> what they do is they build our recipes, uh-huh. our, our grow-how. And one of the big things in that is actually adjusting the light spectrum to then stimulate the plant to do different things, like grow a bit more or uh, change its flavour a bit. So, um, for example, with Rocket, we might use a slightly different light spectrum to a different type of lettuce plant. And that actually changes the flavour? Yeah, you can change the flavour, you can change the colour, you can change the the way it grows, and you have to be careful because you've got to do it at the right stage of the plant's life cycle, right? But there's a lot of science that goes behind the red light. Uh, There's a lot of science that goes behind the humidity and the temperature and the climate. I was going to say, so the bit that we're in here... I mean, mostly what we can see is ducting. There's colossal amounts of of, um, air ducts and pipes going into it. So what's the actual atmosphere like inside the chamber? Is it it specifically kind of atmosphere that the plants are growing in? Yeah, I guess the easiest way to describe it is like the perfect Mediterranean afternoon. Um, That's what we're trying to emulate all Uh the time, yeah? And... But in order to do that, there's lots of sensors and equipment and, and stuff. And then, you know, in the control room, there are people monitoring that. And then what we're doing all these ducts is bringing air, moist air, from our, um, you know, temperature, um, our climate control units, which are these big boxes behind you. And what they're doing is adjusting the temperature to make sure that those chambers are always permanently in a... Mediterranean afternoon. I mean, this really is, it's a huge science experiment, I guess, in lots of ways, isn't it? That you're learning all the time as you go along and adjusting stuff all the time as you're going along. And you've got total control over all the factors. Yeah, I mean, from from an environmental perspective, um, from an impact perspective, um, we want to be able to monitor and measure everything so that we can identify areas that we can improve. But the same goes for crop agronomy same goes for uh, the engineering team we we probably have meters and monitors in places that we probably don't need them but we have them there because we want to know everything we want to see everything that's going on throughout the life cycle of the plant the way the factory works everything yeah amazing stuff i mean one day do you think we're going to genuinely see a lot more of farming going on like this this is also a good question. I think vertical farming serves a purpose in British agriculture. We import most of our fresh produce, and we don't need to if we do more of this. I think there's, there's absolutely no need to bring it from, from warmer countries if we can do more of this. That said, it is a very complicated piece of kit, and it, it, it will roll out over time, um, but it's not like, you know, we've spent, what, seven, eight years trying to perfect this factory here. Mm-hmm. I think it is possible, um, but you can't just, you know, switch the lights on and go. You, you need a lot of time and energy and, 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 and thought that goes into being able to produce a product like this. And let's talk about the product. So we've got yes. a bag here of... Um, unbelievable crisp green leaves stays fresher in your fridge. So... First thing is, it it does genuinely stay fresher in the fridge, does it? Yeah, 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 it will do. I mean, in your fridge, you can open that bag and keep eating it, and it'll still taste great for 11 days, which 
you know, and that, but there's no preservatives involved, no, 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 and no, no pest, pesticides. No. There's no chemicals no, on it at all. No, it's just virgin lettuce. We don't use any chemicals to produce this product that would make it last longer. It's just what it is. We're just growing it with immense care and attention. And it tastes all right? Yeah, it tastes great. Uh, Open a bag for us. So what have we got in here? I think you've got got four different kinds of leaf, haven't you? Four different lettuces that you're growing at the moment. Yes, we do. This is uh, mescalita, which should be quite sweet. Uh Uh-huh. Mm. Um, Enjoy the sounds of me eating lettuce here. That's really nice. Mm. I mean, it does taste good. I mean, it's difficult mm. like, to convince people on a radio show to, to try and, you know, but it does taste really good. But I would say that. Well, it just I tastes like good lettuce, doesn't go it? Go to a supermarket and buy some and, and, and let us know. Let us know. Right. see what you've done there. Very good. <laughs> So I just want to talk briefly about another aspect to what you do as a business, yeah. which is the kind of the carbon offsetting of the stuff that you can't control within the construction of this. Mm-hmm. You've taken some quite deliberate steps around that as well. Yes. So we're already a very low carbon business for the reasons I told you earlier. You know, we, we cut out a lot of emissions associated with fertilizer and we use renewable energy. Mm-hmm. Um, which makes a really big difference to our greenhouse gas emissions in comparison to, you know, a, um, a lettuce that's grown in a field in Spain. Um, which means that there are some pretty difficult emissions for us to, we can't, to fix. Like, we, 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 it's much more difficult for us where we are, given that we've cut out the big ones already. Mm-hmm. So typically, in a bag of lettuce half of the greenhouse gas emissions of that bag of that bag of lettuce is just the bag yeah not the lettuce the bag how do you how do you reduce that emission we 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 must use a um a packaging um type that provides a highly food safe environment Mm -hmm. which is also transparent because people want to see what they uh, what they want to eat so we use polypropylene mm-hmm. you know if there was something else that was better i would i would use it but we can't not use the best material that's available right mm-hmm. we have to provide mm-hmm. the best product to our customers that means using the best materials to package it right so what do we do well we can look at trying to uh, offset those emissions in the in the medium term mm-hmm. before we can find an alternative and we spent i mean i spent over a year trying to figure out what type of carbon offset we would we would do. I mean, there's so many mm-hmm. different types of doing it, and you've got removals, you've got organic removals, then you've got sort of paying people not to do things, and then you've got um, uh, removing, you know, literally sucking carbon dioxide out of the air. There's all sorts of different things. But we stumbled on Wilder Carbon, which is the Kent Wildlife Trust's kind of wing in this space, and I really like what they were doing. You know, it, it does take a long time for them to remove carbon from the atmosphere longer than perhaps some of the other things that that are available it's more expensive a lot more expensive but the additionality of what they're doing is just way up there compared to anyone else for lots of reasons one they're a charity which means the the beneficiary of what we're paying towards is at the end of the day always going to be the environment mm-hmm. and wildlife, right? It's not going to go off somewhere else, you know, to some corporate. That's a really big deal. 
Second is that it's a whole system approach to removing carbon because they're putting a fence around land and then they're putting livestock in and then that li those livestock are kind of doing what they did at NEP to let the landscape recover on its own. Mm -hmm. That's a really robust way of removing carbon because it's the whole ecosystem that, it, that as it recovers removes carbon from the atmosphere. It's not just a plantation of trees. It's everything within that ecosystem that is removing carbon, down to, you know, the insects and the birds and everything. Is, is all this stuff important to you personally? Because you come from, what, a sheep farming background, don't yeah. you? Yeah, no, it, absolutely. Um, uh, my weekend job, uh, my family business, is a 1,500-acre sheep farm in southeast Scotland. And what I really liked about Paul Hadaway and his team and Sarah Brownlee is that they are conservationists who are doing farming. And I'm a farmer that wants to do farm a la conservation. You know, there's this crossover nowadays that's only really sudden happened in the last sort of two to three years. Seriously, where farmers are thinking, maybe we should try, like farm slightly differently um, and we might get a, we might actually get more out of our land as a result. Mm -hmm. And there's conservationists going, we can't just fence off conservation and then point at the farmers and go, you're bad. They're working together to do things. And then, you know, Paul Hadaway has like, I don't know, like 100 cattle. He's, a, he's the director of the, the, the wildlife director of the Kent Wildlife Trust, and he's got 100 cattle, you know. Mm -hmm. So I just really like what they were doing. And I was like, that's what we're going to do. And it would be very easy, if you're driving past this building, because it is a big blue box, mm. to think, oh, it's a factory unit and to think of this as a factory production but you're really keen to emphasize no no this is a farm this is a working farm that's just doing it in a different way yeah i mean we're producing the same type of stuff we're selling it to the same supermarkets the same people are eating it you know it's the same it's the same thing we are farmers um therefore this is a farm the people who work here are farmers you know they're farm workers um we definitely try to frame the way we conduct our business day-to-day -day and everything like a normal farm. It's very important. We do not want to distinguish ourselves away from you know, great British farming heritage. Well, I think what you're doing here is extraordinary. I've not seen anything quite like it before. It's been a pleasure to take a look around at it. Um, Gillen, thanks ever so much for your time. Cool. Thank you very much for coming. Gillan Doby, Impact Director at Grow Up Farms there. I really did find it absolutely fascinating. As a society, we've got to overcome some really tough problems. And if we want to not only feed 8 billion people in the world and also protect our wildlife and row back from the worst effects of climate change, well then, real-world high-tech solutions that let you have your lettuce and not feel guilty about it are definitely going to be part of solving that conundrum. You can take a look for yourself at their website, growupfarms.co.uk, and their salads are already starting to appear in Tesco and Iceland stores, although ironically not yet in Kent because of the vagaries of the supermarket distribution system. That will soon change. Now, Gillen also mentioned Paul Hadaway. The plan is that you're going to be hearing from Paul talking about all sorts of stuff in the next episode of the podcast. Now, if you've made it this far in the podcast, then kudos to you. And thank you. And here's a couple of bonus bits. Some extra bits of news and stuff that's been going on 
in the last month. The charity Rewilding Britain has named Kent Wildlife Trust as the first recipient of its new Rewilding Challenge Fund, which is an annual award of up to £100,000 for rewilding projects that think big, act wild. Well, the funding's been awarded to help scale up the Trust's rewilding efforts within and beyond the Bleen Complex near Canterbury, an area which contains one of the largest continuous areas of ancient woodland in southern England. The Bleen, of course, is already home to the UK's first reintroduced European bison, which were famously released last year, along with other large herbivores in a key stage of the Trust's rewilding plans. Also, chuffs. Specifically, red-billed chuffs. They are, at long last, flying freely over the white cliffs of Dover for the first time in at least two centuries. Now, the release is the culmination of four years of partnership work by Wildwood Trust and Kent Wildlife Trust, bringing together some of the leading experts in chuff breeding and reintroduction. The red-billed chuff is a rare member of the crow family, with glossy black plumage, red legs and their distinctive bright red beak. They used to be a common bird in Kent, but uh, changing farming practices and persecution saw them disappear. Despite the fact that they're so associated with the area, there's actually three of them on the coat of arms at Canterbury. And finally, it's a totem mystery. An anonymous artist has caused a bit of a stir at a nature reserve in Capel the Fern. Walkers along the clifftop path on the North Downs Way between Dover and Folkestone can now marvel at an eight-foot sculpture which appeared overnight and nobody knows who put it there. It's carved from a single tree and is inscribed with the name Percunus, who's a Baltic god apparently. The local authority, Dover District Council, has asked that the Trust now seeks retrospective planning permission if they want to keep Percunus the pole. So the charity is very keen to track down the original artist and shed some light on the mystery. If you do know anything, do drop me a line. Well, that's it for uh, this episode. Hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly have. Uh, This has been a Wild Rover media production for Kent Wildlife Trust. I've been Rob Smith. And until the next time, if you possibly can, do go wild in the country. Bye.